to Even Darker. I'm so glad you're here. Having always been fascinated by fairy tales, mythical creatures, mythology, folk tales, and legends, I wanted to create a podcast about these exact stories. In each episode, Chris Gordon, Jay Stinnett, or Damian Drake will tell us a story. Then I, Regina Drake, will review the points of the story I found most interesting, shocking, or downright unforgivable. Allow me to show you the origins of things even darker. Take heed, these are in the original early content, not the Big Mouse versions. No shade on him, but this is not for the young. Excited to announce our edition of Mythical Moments of Mythology with Karen Ellinger. Finally, we are going to get a dose of mythology. My favorite. For our 31st episode, and I'm staying with the serpent theme. We will start with the legend of White Snake. This comes to us from China, first found in written form during the Ming Dynasty. That means it was written somewhere between 1368 to 1644 AD. And now for our story. Lu Dongbin, one of the eight immortals, disguises himself as a Tangyin vendor at the broken bridge near the west lake of Hangzhou. A boy called Zuzan buys some Tangyin from Lu Dongbin without knowing that they are actually immortality pills. After eating them, he does not feel hungry for the next three days, so he goes back to ask the vendor why. Lu Dongbin laughs and carries Zunzan to the bridge where he flips him upside down and causes him to vomit the Tangyin into the lake. In the lake dwells a white snake serpent who has been practicing Taoist magical arts. She eats the pills and gains 500 years worth of magical powers. She therefore feels grateful to Zuzan and their fates become intertwined. There is another terrapin or tortoise Spirit also training in the lake, who did not manage to consume any of the pills. He is very jealous of the white snake. One day, the white snake sees a beggar on the bridge who has caught a green snake and wants to dig out the snake's gall and sell it. The white snake transforms into a woman and buys the green snake from the beggar, thus saving the green snake's life. The green snake is grateful to the white snake and she regards the white snake as an elder sister. Eighteen years later, during the Ming Festival, the white and green snakes transformed themselves into two young women called Bao Suzen and Zhao Qing. Respectively, they meet Zuzan at the bridge in Hangzhou. 
Zuzan leads them to his umbrella because it is raining. Zuzan and Baozin gradually fall in love and are eventually married. They move to Zhangxi, where they open a medicine shop. In the meantime, the Terrapin spirit accumulated enough powers to take on human form, so he transforms into a Buddhist monk called Fai. Still angry with Bao Suzan, Fai plots to break up the relationship with Zuzan. He approaches Zuzan and tells him that during the Daowen festival, his wife should drink regular wine, an alcoholic drink commonly consumed during the festival. Bao Suzan unexpectedly drinks the wine and reveals her true form as a large white snake. Zuzan dies of shock after seeing that his wife is not human. Bao Sushin and Zinquin travel to Mount Imi, where they brave danger to steal a magical herb that restores Zuzan to life. After coming back to life, Zuzan still maintains his love for Bao Sushin, despite knowing her true nature. Fai tries to separate them again by capturing Zuzan and imprisoning him at the Jashuan Temple. Bao Shuzhen and Zhao He fight with Fai to rescue Zuzan. During the battle, Bao Shuzhen uses her powers to flood the temple, causing collateral damage and drowning many innocent people in the process. However, her powers are limited because she is already pregnant with Zuzan's child. So she fails to save her husband, Susan, later manages to escape the Jashan temple and reunite with his wife in Hangzhou, whereby Susan gives birth to their son, Zhao Mingzhao. Fai Hei tracks him down, defeats Bao Susan, and imprisoned her in Lifeng Pango. Zhao Qian flees, vowing vengeance. Twenty years later, Zhao Mingzhao earns the position of Zhang Qianwen, top scholar in the imperial examination, and returns home in glory to visit his parents. At the same time, Zhao Qin, who had spent the intervening years refraining her powers, goes to the Jishan temple to confront Hai and defeats him. Bao Shuzhen is freed from the Lefuan Pangol and reunited with her husband and son, while Fahai flees and hides in the stomach of a crab there is a saying that a crab's internal's fat is orange because it resembles the color of fahai. Under the umbrella of full disclosure, I've taken immortality pills, also known as amphetamines, not tangyaun. Also, spoiler alert, these immortality pills were short-lived, only about eight hours. This Tengya-un doesn't dissolve, does it? From the stomach of a boy after three, yes, three days, into a lake, still the pills are able to be taken by another creature. Hmm, we have a jealous tortoise. That's new. Let me get this straight. After a couple of drinks, Bei Sozen, murdering that, I'm sure, she is revealed. Wine always revealed my true self. She scares her husband to death and then brings him back to life with magic. So, zombie love? <laughs> to have a monk 
and a vengeful tortoise after you. And then after everything, you end up in a pagoda for 20 years. Oof. The white snake was known in older versions as white lady or white maiden and was a horror story. In that story, the Buddhist monk, Fa He, is out to save Su Zai In, soul, from the white snake spirit, who is an evil demon. Over centuries, this has evolved into a romance story, though uh, their relationship is forbidden by the laws of nature. I hadn't heard of Taoist magical arts. I gave it a goog and found there are classes. Who knew? This is what I found. The world is filled with power. Spirits, deities, natural elements, plants, animals, and humanity itself all have power in them. Magical Taoism is the way of power. And using this power requires an understanding and a relationship to it in a virtuous way. The genuine practitioners of Taoist magic always use power for good, never for personal gain. Hmm. Sign me up. You had me at power. Yet another thing to put on my to-do list. In Chinese mythology, serpents or snakes are an important motive. They often appear with the mix... Oh, God. Fuck. Okay, start again. In Chinese mythology, serpents or snakes are important motives. They appear often with a mix of snake and human body parts. Some are described as snakes with human heads or humans with dragon or serpent tails. These snake women are both cunning and lethal. Taking advantage of their surpassing beauty, they haunt the minds of men, sometimes luring them to their doom. No matter in what fashion, their prey always dies a horrible death. Also, the snake is represented in the Chinese zodiac. The story of the Chinese zodiac is that animals were chosen by how they finished a race. The story goes that a race was held to cross a great river, and the snake compensated for not being the best swimmer by hitching a hidden ride on the horse's hoof. And when the horse was just about to cross the finish line, the snake jumps out, scares the horse, and thus ended up in sixth place. I leave you with this. The hour of the snake is from 9 to 11 a.m. As promised, now for even darker. A wise king receives a covered dish every evening. A young servant is intrigued one night when he retrieves the king's dish and discovers a coiled white snake under the cover. 
The servant takes a small bite and discovers that he can now understand and communicate with animals. Shortly afterward, the servant is accused of stealing the queen's ring. He is given one day to prove his innocence or submit to punishment. After having given up, he sits awaiting his demise when he overhears a goose complaining about a ring stuck in her throat. The servant leaps up, grabs the goose, and hurries to the kitchen, where the cook slits the goose's neck and reveals the missing gold ring. The king apologizes and offers the servant land and riches. The servant declines, accepting only a little gold and a horse on which he can see the world. On this journey to another town in another kingdom, the servant first encounters a number of animals in distress, including three fish out of water, ants at risk of being tromped upon, and starving raven fledlings in a nest. In each case, the servant heads up to call for help, and in each case, the grateful animals respond, I will remember and return the favor. In the next town, the servant learns the king has announced that he wishes to marry off his daughter but any suitor must agree to complete an arduous task to the end or be put to death. After one glimpse of the beautiful girl, the young man agrees. The king tosses a gold ring into the sea and tells the young man to retrieve it. He also adds that the young man must either bring the ring back, drown while getting the ring, or be drowned upon returning without it. However, the three fish appearing carrying a mussel with the king's ring inside. Astonished! The king agrees to the marriage of his daughter to the servant. However, the princesses set upon another task of refilling sacks of grain that she has spilled in the grass because she has found out that he is not a noble and thus not her social equal. The young man is discouraged because he believes it is impossible to gather all the grain from the ground and he lies down and falls asleep. When he wakes, he is surprised to find the sacks are all now refilled with not one grain missing. The king ant had all the ants working the entire night to fill them. Still not satisfied, the princess sends the servant off to bring her an apple from the tree of life. The servant does not know where the tree of life stood, but he sets off anyway. After a long journey, he encounters the three raven fledlings who had flown to the end of the world where the tree stands and retrieved the apple for him. The servant takes the apple to the princess and shares it with her, and the two are happily married. The end. This is a German tale gathered by the Grimm brothers. Though this is a synopsis, you get the idea. This story can be found worldwide well-known in Europe and found in Central and Eastern Europe, also Scotland, Ireland, Scandinavia, and the Baltics. The White Serpent Flesh are tales which a character comes to know the language of animals through the help of a serpent. In this case, eating the flesh of a white serpent. A 13th century Icelandic saga describes how Sigurd slew the dragon Fafnir, I think that's how to pronounce it, and learned the language of birds after tasting Fafnir's heart. Can you imagine the size of a dragon's heart? In the Saxo Grammaticus, 12th century, describes how Eric acquired eloquence and wisdom 
by eating the snake-infested stew his stepmother, Kraka, prepared for his half-brother, Roller. Yes, Roller. And before that, we had Kraka. Jeez. I wonder what would have happened if Eve had eaten the snake as opposed to the apple. Notice, we did have the tree of life in this story. Mm-hmm. Ah. And now for our weekly installment of Pinocchio. Chapter 23. As soon as Pinocchio no longer felt the shameful weight of the dog collar around his neck, he started to run across the fields and meadows and never stopped till he came to the main road that was to take him to the fairy's house. When he reached it, he looked into the valley far below, and there he saw the wood where unluckily he had met the fox and cat, and the tall oak tree where he had been hanged. But though he searched far and near, he could not see the house where the fairy with the azure hair lived. He became terribly frightened, and running as fast as he could, he finally came to the spot where it had once stood. The little house was no longer there, and in its place lay a small marble slab, which bore this sad inscription. Here lies the lovely fairy with azure hair, who died of grief when abandoned by her little brother, Pinocchio. The poor marionette was heartbroken at reading these words. He fell to the ground and covering the cold marble with kisses burst into bitter tears. He cried all night and dawn found him still there, though his tears had dried and only hard, dry sobs shook his wooden frame. From these they were so loud that they could be heard all the way into the faraway hills. And as he sobbed, he said to himself, Oh, fairy, my dear, dear fairy, why did you die? Why did I not die, who am so bad instead of you, who are so good? And my father, where can he be? Please, dear fairy, tell me where he is, that I shall never, never leave him again. You're not really dead, are you? If you love me, you'll come back alive as before. Don't you feel sorry for me? I'm so lonely. If the two assassins came, they'd hang me from the giant oak tree and I will really die this time. What shall I do alone in the world now that you are dead and my father is lost? Where shall I eat? Where shall I sleep? Who will make my clothes? Oh, I want to die. Yes, I want to die. Oh, oh, oh. Poor Pinocchio. He even tried to tear his hair, but as it was only painted on his wooden head, he could not even pull it. Just then, a large pigeon flew above him, seeing the marionette. He cried to him, Tell me, boy, little boy, what are you doing there? Can't you see I'm crying, cried Pinocchio, lifting his head towards the voice and rubbing his eyes with his sleeve. Tell me, asked the pigeon, do you by chance know of a marionette, Pinocchio by name? Pinocchio? Did you say Pinocchio? replied the marionette, jumping to his feet. Why, I am Pinocchio. At that answer, the pigeon flew swiftly down to earth. He was much larger than a turkey. Then you know Geppetto also. 
Do I know him? He's my father, my poor dear father. Has he perhaps spoken to you of me? Will you take me to him? Is he still alive? Answer me, please. Is he still alive? I left him three days ago on the shore of a large sea. What was he doing? He was building a little boat with which to cross the ocean. For the last four months, that poor man has been wandering around Europe looking for you. Not having found you yet, he made up his mind to look for you in the new world, far across the ocean. How far is it here to the shore? asked Pinocchio. More than 50 miles. 50 miles? Oh, dear pigeon, how I wish I had your wings. If you want to come, I'll take you with me. How? Stride my back. Are you heavy? Heavy? Not at all. I'm only a feather. Very well. Saying nothing more, Pinocchio jumped on the pigeon's back and settled himself. He cried out gaily, Gallop on, gallop on, my pretty steed. I'm in a great hurry. The pigeon flew away, and in a few minutes he had reached the clouds. The marionette looked to see what was below him. His head swam as he was so frightened that he clutched wildly at the pigeon's neck to keep himself from falling. They flew all day. Toward the evening, the pigeon said, I'm thirsty. And I'm hungry, said Pinocchio. Let us stop for a few minutes so at that pigeon coop down there. Then we can go on and be at the seashore in the morning. They went into the empty coop where they found nothing but a bowl of water and a large basket filled with chickpeas. The marionette had always hated chickpeas, according to him. They had always made him sick, but that night he ate them with a relish. As he finished them, he turned to the pigeon and said, I never should have thought that chickpeas could be so good. You must remember, my boy, answered the pigeon, that hunger is the best sauce. After resting a few minutes longer, they set out again. The next morning, they were at the seashore. Pinocchio jumped off the pigeon's back, and the pigeon, not wanting any thanks for a kind deed, flew away swiftly and disappeared. The shore was full of people, shrieking and tearing their hair as they looked towards the sea. What has happened? asked Pinocchio of the little old woman. A poor boy lost his only son some time ago, and today he's built a tiny boat for himself in order to go in search of him across the ocean. The water is very rough, and we're afraid he will be drowned. Where's the little boat? There, straight down there, answered the old woman, pointing to the tiny shadow, no bigger than a nutshell, floating on the sea. Pinocchio looked closely for a few minutes and then gave a sharp cry. It's my father! It's my father! Meanwhile, the little boat, tossed about by the angry waters, appeared and disappeared in the waves. And Pinocchio, standing on a high rock, tired out with searching, waved to him with his hand and cap, and even with his nose. It looked as if Geppetto, though far away from the shore, recognized his son, for he took off his cap and waved also. He seemed to be trying to make everyone understand that he would come back if he were able, but the sea was so heavy that he could do nothing with his oars. Suddenly, a huge wave came, and the boat disappeared. They waited and waited for it, but it was gone.
Poor man, said the fisher folk on the shore, whispering as a prayer as they turned to go home. Just then a desperate cry was heard. Turning around, the fisher folk saw Pinocchio dive into the sea and heard him cry out, I'll save him, I'll save my father. The marionette, being made of wood, floated easily along and swam like a fish in the rough water. Now and again, he disappeared only to reappear once more. In a twinkling, he was far away from land. At last, he was completely lost to view. Poor boy, cried the fisher folk on the shore. And again, they mumbled a few prayers as they turned to head for home. Pinocchio is on the run. The Azure Fairy is dead. Pigeons larger than turkeys. <laughs> okay, best line. Hunger is the best sauce. Perfect. Okay, so Geppetto builds a boat. You know, these fisher folk people, they they just stand and watch. And couldn't they have stopped him? But we finally found out what Pinocchio's good at. Floating. Now for our new segment, Mythical Moments in Mythology with Karen Ellinger. Pegasus is the majestic flying horse, one of the best-known creatures in Greek mythology. This creature is traditionally depicted as a pure white horse with wings. Pegasus was sired from the god of the sea Poseidon, with its mother being the famous Gorgon Medusa. Pegasus is known for its association with the heroes Perseus and Bellophrin. In the story of Perseus' slaying of Medusa, one can find the narration of Pegasus' birth, this winged horse later became the mount of Bellerophon and can be found in the stories about this hero's exploits, including the slaying of Chimera and his flight to Mount Olympus. Its name comes from the Piage, water priestesses, who tended the sacred spring of Pyrenees in Corinth. The cult seems to have been rooted in Egypt. The oldest shrine of Osiris at Abydos, 2000 BC, centers on the sacred spring called Pega. Pegasus's Crescent moon-shaped hoof stamped the ground and dug the Hippocrene Horsewell, a spring of poetic inspiration on Mount Helicon, the home of the Muses. A man who wrote him could become a great poet. This was another kind of immortality. The writer of Pegasus could figuratively fly through the air to reach the heavens. Hesiod's Theogony is written that with her, Medusa, the god of the sable locks Poseidon, lay in a soft meadow among the spring flowers. The union between Medusa and Poseidon resulted in Pegasus and Chrysor, who were born when Medusa was decapitated by the hero Perseus. And when Perseus cut off her head from her neck, out sprang great Chrysor and the horse Pegasus. He was so named because he was born beside the waters of Oceanus, while the other was born with a golden sword in his hands. Hesiod also mentions that after Pegasus was born, the horse flew off to Mount Olympus, where it came to live in Zeus's palace. There, Pegasus was given the job of carrying the god's thunder and lightning. 
Alternatively, the stories in Greek mythology suggest that Pegasus spent some time on Earth before flying to Mount Olympus. During this time, Pegasus served two heroes, Perseus and Bellofrin. Following the death of Medusa, Perseus is said to have been traveling home when he caught sight of a maiden chained to a rock. This was Andromeda, the daughter of the king and queen of Ethiopia. Andromeda's mother had angered Poseidon by boasting that her daughter was more beautiful than even the Nereidus. The god then punished the people of Ethiopia by first sending a flood and then a sea monster to terrorize them. The only way to appease Poseidon was to sacrifice Andromeda, which was the reason for her being chained to the rock. Perseus offered to rescue the princess and deal with the monster, provided that he be given Andromeda's hand in marriage. The king agreed to this, and when the monster came to claim the princess, it was turned to stone by Perseus with the severed head of Medusa. The connection between Pegasus and Andromeda can be seen in the sky today, where their constellations can be found side by side. Pegasus was also the mount of Bellorphin, who came to possess the flying horse during his quest against the Chimera. According to one story, the hero had visited the city of Tyrans, where Protus was king. The queen, Sthenedia, is said to have fallen in love with Bellorphin, though the hero rejected her advances. Feeling humiliated, Sthenedia went to her husband and accused the hero of trying to seduce her. The enraged Protus sent Bellofrin to his father-in-law, Ibodes, the king of Lyca, with the letter. In the letter, the king was asked to kill the messenger. Instead of putting Bellofrin to death, however, Iobetz decided to dispatch the hero on a quest to kill the Chimera, believing that he would not survive the encounter. To prepare for this quest, Bellofrin is said to have consulted the Corinthian seer Polyadus, who advised him to seek out Pegasus. In one version of the myth, Polydeus knew where Pegasus alighted to drink near the fountain Pyrene and shared the information with Bellofrin, thus allowing him to tame it. In another version, it was Poseidon, Bellofrin's secret father, who brought Pegasus to him. The most popular version of the story, however, is that it was Athena who brought Pegasus to Bellofrin. With the help of Pegasus, Bellofrin succeeded in slaying the Chimera. Over time, Bellerophon's pride grew, and he aspired to scale the heights of Mount Olympus on the back of Pegasus to take his place amongst the immortals. Zeus was aware of the hero's ambition and sent a gadfly to sting Pegasus. Bellerophon lost his balance and fell back to earth and was devoured by wild man-eating mares. Pegasus, however, continued the journey to Mount Olympus and went on to live in the stables next to Zeus's palace and was given the task of carrying the god's thunder and lightning. He was eventually turned into a constellation. Pegasus was so iconic, he was portrayed through Greek pottery, paintings, and sculptures throughout the historic Renaissance. The emblem of the World War II British Airborne Forces, designed by Major Edward Siago in May 1942, depicts Bellofin riding the flying horse Pegasus. The selection process for the elite parachute regimen up to this day is called Pegasus Company, often abbreviated to P Company. The Tuscan National Liberation Committee during the German occupation of Italy also had a Pegasus as its emblem. The winged horse is still featured on the Tuscan flag and coat of arms. Pegasus Airlines is a low-cost airline headquartered in Istanbul, Turkey, 
Mobile Oil has had a Pegasus as its company logo since its affiliation with Magnolia Petroleum Company in the 1930s. The end. It's interesting that you said Pegasus is so well known because I have a really young memory of, I believe I was between four and five, and I was daydreaming about Pegasus, wishing that Pegasus would appear and carry us to the top of this hill that we were climbing as kids. And my siblings had me out front because it was safer for me to be out front. Well, I got hit when this loose rock mountain we were climbing, a rock came down and hit me in the face and I had to have plastic surgery on my eye. Pegasus was born of Medusa and Poseidon. Wow. Mind blown. Trying to imagine that. Oof. The Colt, the Horsewell. Address, please. My GPS is not locating it. Can you imagine a sibling being a winged horse? (laughs) Uh, And, you know, that's one thing. The story of Andromeda, maybe Karen will take us deeper into that. But I always thought, what the heck? Andromeda and everyone in Ethiopia are being punished because of her mother boasting about her daughter. Wow. Wow. The killing of the messenger reference. You know, I've heard the one, don't kill the messenger. Is it born out of this story? Hannah, gadfly? I believe I heard gadfly. To be devoured by man-eating mares? God, I think we can all agree that we're glad that man-eating mares are extinct. Don't you just love mythology? It's the best. Thank you, Karen. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Even Darker. Please review and follow us. If you'd like to support us, do it. I'd love to hear your feedback, so leave a voice message if you are so inclined. I want to thank two of my most favorite men on this planet, Damian Drake and Jay Stinnett, for being our storytellers and give an even darker welcome to Karen Ellinger. Even Darker is made with Anchor and can be found on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcast platforms.